Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once, the day it drops? Sign up for Slate Plus. You can try it for a month for just $1. And it supports not only this show, but all of Slate's acclaimed journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives. Plus, Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks. And now, please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanthi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 35 years ago, in the closing months of 1986, women with rock foundations and pop sensibilities were doing quite well on the charts. From Tina Turner to Belinda Carlisle, Carly Simon to Aretha Franklin, the Chrissy Hind-led Pretenders to the Annie Lennox-fronted Eurythmics. But by November 1986, three acts in particular were drawing outsized attention, and they were all singing on the same LP. That album was True Colors, the second studio LP by New York singer, songwriter, and fashion iconoclast Cyndi Lauper. A lot was riding on Lauper's sophomore album, which was following up a multi-platinum debut. So Cyndi brought backup, literally. On background vocals, the LP's lead-off track, Change of Heart, featured the fast-rising Los Angeles all-female foursome, The Bangles. The Bangles were having a very good 1986. They'd scored a couple of top 40 hits and a gold album on its way to platinum. And, at the same moment that they were backing up Lauper, another Bangles single was rising fast and about to change the trajectory of their career. Among the other guest vocalists on Lauper's album was a Boston-based songwriter and very distinctive vocalist who fronted a band of her own, Amy Mann, the leader of Till Tuesday. They, too, were rising on the Billboard charts in the fall of 86. Two. 
Like Lauper, Mann was under pressure to show that her prior success wasn't a fluke. Till Tuesday had scored a big hit a year earlier, one that had defined Amy Mann in the public's imagination. Mann at least wrote her breakthrough hit. The Bangles were also trying to live up to the success of a recent smash, but theirs had been bequeathed to them by a rock superstar. Even Cindy Lauper, a formidable songwriter, had broken through with a mix of tracks she'd written and some she hadn't, but she made all of them her own. There are many parallels in the careers of these 80s hitmakers. They fought for their autonomy in a business that often belittled women performers or pitted them against each other. Each of them sought to define their own image, even when the public and the industry had other ideas. And they weren't afraid to defy expectations, zigging when they could have zagged. Keeping their careers going past the 1980s meant persevering, even when it looked like they had been forgotten. It's not going to stop and between Hollywood and Broadway, they wound up in places none of them could have foreseen. Today on Hit Parade, we'll consider these persistent women of 80s pop, how they emerged from distinctive rock scenes and then outgrew them, how they survived fights they didn't start, sometimes within their own bands, and why they remain fondly remembered, critically acclaimed, and influential decades later. And they all crossed paths just once, on a platinum album that was make or break for its vibrant, flamboyant, and oh-so-unusual star. In a world full of people, you can lose sight of it all in the darkness, no inside you make you feel so small. But I see your true colors shining through. And that's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending November 1st, 1986, when True Colors by Cyndi Lauper, the title track from her then-new LP, was in its second week at number one on the Hot 100. The same week, The Bangles and Till Tuesday cracked the top 40 with their latest hits. One of those hits would soon wind up even bigger than True Colors, the other not so much. Even less predictable in 86 was where these women would all wind up in the decades to come. How did Cyndi Lauper, The Bangles, and Amy Mann survive the colorful, capricious world of 80s pop? Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Speaking of 80s survivors, this is The Go-Go's with their classic We Got The Beat, a number two hit in 1982. We're dropping this episode of Hit Parade just weeks after the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Cleveland, where, as you may have heard, The Go-Go's were among the 2021 inductees. The female fivesome even performed their classic hit live on the Rock Hall stage. This recognition was a long time coming. Charlotte Caffey, Belinda Carlisle, Gina Schock, Kathy Valentine, and Jane Weedlin first recorded together as the Go-Go's as early as 1980. Long waits are not unusual for Rock Hall induction, but the institution's track record with women has been particularly poor. This year's Hall roster was hyped as a triumph for diversity because half of the class of 2021 were women, Tina Turner, Carol King, and the Go-Go's. And, unlike such recent Hall inductees as Nina Simone, Whitney Houston, and Sister Rosetta Tharp, all three of this year's acts are still alive. That is, sadly, a first for the Hall. Half the class are living women. I bring up all of these Rock and Roll Hall of Fame statistics as a stark reminder of the long odds female performers, even legends, have to confront. The Go-Go's were the first and still only all-woman rock band to score a number one album, the 1982 chart topper Beauty and the Beat. They were seminal in the development of rock for women, and for performers of any gender. And it took this long for them to even make the Rock Hall ballot, let alone get inducted. It might not surprise you, therefore, that none of the subjects of this episode of Hit Parade have been so much as nominated for the Hall. As I noted in our December 2017 episode, much of which focused on the Go-Go's, they were an influence on both the Bangles, a near-contemporaneous all-female group, and, 
and Cindy Lauper, a New Wave fellow traveler. But Lauper and the Bangles grew out of distinctive scenes separate from the L.A. punk scene that spawned the Go-Go's. That also goes for the rangy, far-reaching career of new wave-turned-adult alternative exemplar Amy Mann. So, fine, we won't hold our breath waiting for these performers to make the Rock Hall ballot anytime soon. But even if the Rock Hall isn't going to honor them, we can. To trace how they developed their distinct personae as the 80s dawned, we have to go back to some garages in Los Angeles, the clubs around Boston, and the streets of New York City. This demo, appropriately enough, is called Hungry, and it was recorded by the downtown New York band Blue Angel, which formed in 1978 when saxophonist John Tory at a Greenwich Village nightclub met a 25-year-old strong-lunged singer named Cynthia Ann Stephanie Lauper. Born in 1953 and raised in Ozone Park, Queens, Cindy Lauper, a teen friend encouraged her to give her first name the unusual spelling C-Y-N-D-I, left home at 17 and spent her early 20s singing with several cover bands. They all took full advantage of Cindy's potent four-octave voice, so much so that she had damaged her vocal cords by 1977 and relied on a singing coach to get her voice back. It would not be the last time Cindy Lauper overcame long odds. Do you decorate like this often? Um, it was a rough night last night. Just another, another night in a rock star's life. Blue Angel was, finally, the band to win Lauper a recording contract at the fairly advanced age of 26. She, John Tory, and the other band members settled on a kind of new wave retro rockabilly sound, which they showcased on the band's one and only self-titled album on Polydor Records in 1980. It was a sound suffused with kitsch. Lauper would wear vintage clothes in clashing patterns. And it was informed by New York rock. Blue Angel were not punk, and they never played legendary club CBGB. In fact, Cindy notes in her memoir that the band mostly played uptown clubs, as well as Great Gildersleeves, a downtown club a block away from CBGB. But Cindy was a fan of that first wave of punk, post-punk, and new wave, idolizing the likes of Elvis Costello, So you had better do what you were told You better listen to the radio The early punk-era version of The Police the tough-minded transatlantic rock of Chrissy Hines' Pretenders. And in the wake of such campy punk and post-punk bands as the New York Dolls and the B-52s, The sound of retro crossed with new wave was very on trend. 
Cindy Lauper did indeed possess a classic Phil Spector girl group worthy voice. But what really seemed to connect for Blue Angel were not the bops, but rather Cindy's torch songs, which she also sang beautifully. Indeed, the only Blue Angel song to break on any chart anywhere in the world was their slow dance cover of Gene Pitney's I'm Gonna Be Strong, which went to number 37 in the Netherlands. Cindy turned down multiple offers to ditch the band and go solo. She was loyal to John and the Blue Angel bandmates, and she didn't want to be pigeonholed as a balladeer. Relations soured with both Polydor Records and the band's manager, and Lauper ultimately declared bankruptcy to get out from under her contract. To pay the bills, Cindy wound up working at Screaming Mimi's, a vintage clothing store famed for its ahead-of-the-curve looks and informative to Lauper's own look. Cindy worked as a salesgirl at Mimi's for two years, minding the racks while cutting-edge new wave stars like Lena Lovitch passed through. Lauper, a former recording artist herself, was too afraid to talk to Lovitch. That might have been the end of the story. Had Cindy not attended a Christmas party in 1981 and met a fast-talking, goofy but charming musician-turned-road manager named Dave Wolf. After they started dating, Lauper invited Wolf to a New Year's gig that she and Blue Angel were playing in a dive in Passaic, New Jersey, when her tipsy performance of the standard Blue Christmas didn't scare Wolf off. She not only kept dating him, she hired him as her manager. Won't be the same By the end of 1982, Wolf had gotten Lauper signed to Portrait Records, a subsidiary of major label Epic Records. Three years after the flameout of Blue Angel, Cindy Lauper was going along with what everyone in the business had long recommended to her, recording a solo album. Meanwhile, around the same time, on the West Coast, Here's another early recording by a hungry, eager band. In 1981, the Peterson sisters, guitarist Vicki Peterson and drummer Debbie Peterson of Northridge, California, met Brentwood native Susanna Hoffs. They literally met in a garage, which Hoffs had converted into an apartment and a place where Susanna could practice her guitar. Vicky, Debbie, and Susanna were all born at the turn of the 50s into the 60s, and they spent their childhoods listening to AM radio pop music. Rehearsing together in Hoff's garage, they discovered they not only loved a lot of the same British Invasion era pop, their voices had natural, instantaneous harmony. After 
after bringing in a bassist named Annette Zelinskis and trying out several band names, by 1982 they had settled on The Bangs, after the hairstyle, inspired by a reference in a 1965 fashion magazine article. And that name wasn't the only thing retro about The Bangs. Chiming guitars, vintage mod beats, sweet harmonies. These were would-be 60s songs played on 80s instruments. In a way, a West Coast analog to what the East Coasters in Blue Angel were doing. And like Cyndi Lauper's first group, the Bangs were part of a scene. Susanna Hoffs's boyfriend, David Roback, was in a similarly retro L.A. band called Rain Parade. Their contemporary, Michael Curcio, formed a garage-style band, first called the Salvation Army, and then eventually the Three O'Clock. Susanna Hoffs's and Vicki Peterson's friend Steve Wynn formed a band called The Dream Syndicate. Together, these bands came to be known as the Paisley Underground, a name Curcio from The Three O'Clock tossed off in an interview that stuck. Music critic Chris O'Leary calls the Paisley Underground acts, quote, translators of the dead 60s into the fledgling 80s, who treated it with more love than irony, unquote. By the end of 1982, the four bands were playing live bills together, and the Bangs, informed that a band from the East Coast already had that name, had tweaked it. They were now the Bangles. On the strength of their first self-titled EP, featuring songs like Mary Street, the Bangles were signed to IRS Records, the indie super label that had signed the Go-Go's. IRS label chief Miles Copeland served as the Bangles' manager, and he moved quickly to increase their profile, getting them opening slots on a tour by New Wave Titans' The English Beat, and a guest slot on MTV's first indie music show, The Cutting Edge, where Susanna Hoffs described their whole 60s gone 80s ethos. Well, I think we all grew up listening to Top 40 radio in the 60s, which was everything from Dusty Springfield to Dylan to the Beatles to Motown stuff. And living, growing up in L.A. where you're always in a car, we were always listening to the radio yeah. constantly. And so that was a major influence. Radio you know, Yeah, that's, what, that's where it started, I think. And TV and everything, the media was just exploding in the 60s. So it was visual, it was radio, everything was happening. By 1983, still with only an independent EP under their belt, the Bangles were even appearing on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. The next song is called Want You. Who creates the music? Who writes the music? Well, Vicky and Susanna do. Did you write this one? Sure did. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, the Bangles. It was around this time that bassist Annette Zelinskis, whose voice never quite harmonized as well with the Peterson sisters and Hoffs, left the group for another band. The Bangles needed a new bassist, preferably one with girl band experience, and so they decided to try for a real pro. Yesterday's kids better stand aside. 
Mickey Steele had played in the first version of The Runaways, the legendary all-women band, alongside Joan Jett and Sandy West. This demo of Yesterday's Kids with Steele was never issued, and she left before the band's first recording. Steele then went on to play in more than a dozen L.A. bands, and she was known around the scene as a potent bassist who played the instrument like it was a lead. By the 80s, Mickey had changed her first name to Michael Steele, and that's when Vicki Peterson recruited her for The Bangles. You and I, Michael Steele blended seamlessly into the Bangles. Not only her bass playing, but her voice. Critic and Bangles chronicler Chris O'Leary writes, quote, Some bands only cement upon the arrival of a final member. The Beatles with Ringo. The Bangles with Steele. She elevated them. Slightly older, with a decade of experience on stage, she had the neo-60s sound down cold, and she added a robustness to the harmonies. She would soon become as substantial a composer as Hoff's and the Petersons." The bangles were now complete, and they had both retro harmonies and punk energy. Meanwhile, back on the East Coast, one more rock-loving woman was finding her sound and her tribe. Amy Elizabeth Mann, born just outside of Richmond, Virginia in 1960, had a tumultuous childhood. After her parents split, Amy's mother and a new boyfriend kidnapped Mann and took her to Europe. Her father found her and brought her back to Virginia, and as a tween, Amy taught herself bass and guitar over the disinterest and even the ridicule of her family. By the time she was a teenager in the 70s, Amy had grown attracted to punk rock. Mann later told The Guardian, quote, It was a revelation. The punk and new wave scene was so interesting, so inventive. Literally, do whatever you want. That Patti Smith was out there and people were accepting her? Oh my God, there's a way out. Unquote. I'm dancing escaped Virginia by enrolling in Boston's Berklee College of Music in 1978, but she dropped out after only a year and a half and dove into the Boston music scene. She soon formed a post-punk group called Young Snakes, to which she brought the unique sound of her bass playing and her voice. On a 1981 Boston punk compilation, Mann was one of only three female singers. But Mann tired of the band's angular, arty sound. She wasn't all that interested in punk credibility. Quote, the other two guys objected to any love songs or any songs that had melody, she later told the LA Times. They were into lyrics that didn't mean much, unquote. After breaking away from Young Snakes, Amy Mann briefly joined proto-industrial band Ministry, led by Al Jorgensen. At the time, Ministry were closer to a synth-pop band, and in her brief time with the group, Mann learned how to write songs more efficiently. By 1983, Amy Mann had formed the band that would be her ticket to fame, T-1000. 
Till Tuesday, a foursome that included her then-boyfriend Michael Hausman on drums. The group combined the synth-pop production Mann picked up in her stint in ministry with the singing style she'd brought to Young Snakes. Their first single, a demo called Love in a Vacuum, won a battle of the band's competition by a Boston radio station. Within a year, Till Tuesday were signed to Epic Records, the same parent label that had just signed Cyndi Lauper. The band's sound was now squarely in the new wave pop realm, as heard in this demo of No More Crying. But the demo that most appealed to Epic Records when they signed the band was a track Mann wrote about an embittered relationship. Provocatively, the song's pronouns were all she, not he. That's how Mann performed it live, suggesting it might be about a lesbian relationship. Label predictably pushed Amy Mann to flip those pronouns because, to them, Voices Carry sounded like a hit. Even with its pronouns changed, however, the song would be exceedingly raw for a radio single. Back on the East Coast, Cindy Lauper was headed into the studio with Rick Chertoff, a producer from Columbia Records, a sister label to Epic in the CBS family. Chertoff, at the time, was working on the debut album by an up-and-coming Philadelphia band called The Hooters. Lauper liked elements of the Hooters' sound, and so the groups Rob Hyman and Eric Bazilian became the backbone of her studio band for the album. However, she had to direct the band to play the sound she was hearing in her head. For example, for a cover of this song by cult band The Brains, Money Changes Everything, which would lead off the album. Cindy felt the band was playing in a very dated Dylan-esque style, so she told guitarist Eric Bazilian and producer Rick Chertoff to go and listen to The Clash. Make believe you're playing London Calling, she said. London calling to the faraway towns Now war is declared and battle come down that tough guitar sound was then emulated by Bazilian and the band in Lauper's final version of Money Changes Everything. The album wound up being half covers, thanks largely to producer Chertoff, who envisioned Lauper as a song interpreter more than a songwriter he would ultimately be proved wrong on that score. Fortunately, Chertoff and Lauper had good taste in material, like this track from a recent Prince album. When You Were Mine was Prince's new waviest song of his early years, an album cut on his 1980 Dirty Mind LP that had only ever seen release as a B-side. Cindy transformed that song too, finding the ache in Prince's jam. So I know, I know that- 
but easily the most transformative cover on the album was a song you may not have known was a cover, and it was by this somewhat obscure rocker dude. Robert Hazard was a would-be hitmaker who never quite hit, an American from Pennsylvania trying to sound like a British New Waver. This song, Escalator of Life, was his only Hot 100 appearance, and it peaked at number 58 in mid-1983. However, a few years earlier, Hazard wrote and demoed this song, an ode to girls and their frivolity, written from a male point of view. The song was quirky, horny, and kinda sexist. Hazard's version was about a boy warned by his parents to stop hanging around with good time girls. Yet Rick Chertoff was convinced girls just wanna have fun could be transformed by Cyndi Lauper into something empowering. Quote, the word anthem kept coming up, Lauper said in her memoir. So, I went about the arrangement in a more radical way." Unquote. At the time, the Hooters' Eric Bazilian was playing in a sort of white reggae style. Lauper asked him to keep the reggae feel but shift his playing toward more Motown-esque riffs. She also shifted the key of the song towards something more female-friendly. She was inspired by an old song by the 50s duo Shirley and Lee. Shirley sang in a higher key. While Lauper was working up her vocal, Chertoff encouraged her to try a hiccuping sound after the word fun, telling her to evoke Buddy Holly. Then, to help with the backing vocals, Chertoff invited into the studio the great singer-songwriter Ellie Greenwich, co-writer of such 60s classics as Be My Baby and leader of the pack. Greenwich not only sang and helped arrange the vocals, she convinced Cyndi Lauper they should be in the form of a chant, the way the Shangri-Las might sing it. This bespoke combination, reggae filtered through Motown, a bubbly lead vocal punctuated by little hiccups, and an army of women who had her back. This utterly transformed Robert Hazard's trifle into an anthem. Yet, it was still a bop. Lauper added the feminism and kept the fun. debut singles are as artist-defining as Girls Just Want to Have Fun was for Cyndi Lauper. The song was a party, as exemplified by its music video, which co-starred Lauper's mother and an army of multicultural, multiracial friends. And yet, it was also strangely moving, as when Cyndi declares, quote, I want to be the one to walk in the sun. The madcap energy of the track matched the album's title, which Lauper adapted from a 1920s ditty by Helen Kane, the singer who inspired the cartoon character Betty Boop. Cindy included a brief cover of that track near the end of the album. When I want some love. 
She's so unusual. The LP was expert branding on Cindy's part. Lauper was photographed for the cover by Annie Leibovitz, dancing in Brooklyn's Coney Island in a red prom dress, barefoot, and in fishnet stockings. The cover matched the contents, and Cindy really leaned into that unusual image. Is what really put her over the top. <laughs> This girl, Cindy Lauper, and why is she so unusual? <laughs> Released in the fall of 1983, She's So Unusual climbed the Billboard LP chart steadily through early 84, while Girls Just Wanna Have Fun scaled the Hot 100, fueled by heavy play on MTV. By March of 84, the single had peaked at number two on the pop chart. Three weeks later, She's So Unusual broke into the album chart's top ten. An amazing start, but Cyndi Lauper's year of chart dominance was just beginning. While making the album, Lauper had to convince her label and producer Rick Chertoff she was a capable songwriter. So she tried writing with the duo from the Hooters, who were backing her in the studio. Keyboardist Rob Hyman had a phrase Cindy liked, a suitcase of memories, that she thought she could build a song around. The song's other memorable lines, Lying in my bed, I hear the clock tick, or The second hand unwinds, those were Cindy's coinages. She built the song to showcase the powerful ballad voice she had used so memorably with Blue Angel. For the title, Cindy flipped open a TV guide, which was broadcasting a 1979 sci-fi film about a time machine, starring Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen. Its name, Time After Time. The song was good, so good, Lauper was a little ticked off that they had discouraged her from penning her own material. Quote, Why did you make me do all this other stuff? She asked them. I could have been writing more songs all along. Unquote. When it was finally issued as the second single from She's So Unusual, time after time went all the way to the top. Casey Kasem counted it down. Cindy Lauper says people used to throw rocks at me for my clothes. Now they want to know where I buy them. Doesn't that seem weird to you? Well, there's nothing weird about Cindy Lauper's current hit song because it's gone to the top. The new number one song in the USA, time after time. Cindy Lauper and Rob Hyman hadn't just written a hit, they'd created a new standard. Time After Time has been covered repeatedly over the last four decades, including by jazz legend Miles Davis, who was including it in his sets as early as 1985. Acoustic jazz duo Tuck and Patty who recorded a take in 1988 that became popular on Quiet Storm and Smooth Jazz stations. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me Time after time And 90s pop and b singer Inoje, who took the song back onto the Hot 100 in 1998, where it peaked at number six. In 1984, for the follow-up to Time After Time, Epic issued a very different track, another one Lauper had co-written for herself, and it was about um, what she'd like to do to herself. Pages of a blue boy. 
Lauper and her co-writer Steve Lunt wanted Shebop to be an unprecedented song about female masturbation, one that would sail over the heads of young kids. Though it referenced Blue Boy magazine and included such lines as they say I'll better stop or I'll go blind, it was subtle enough to get played on the radio. Lauper's subterfuge mostly worked, although the song was later included in the Parents Music Resource Center's Filthy 15 list of objectionable pop songs, alongside the likes of Prince's Darling Nikki and Judas Priest's Eat Me Alive. This censure by the PMRC annoyed Lauper, not just for its sex negativity, but because she really had tried to keep it PG-rated. Quote, I was so mad, she said in her memoir. I had made sure that I never mentioned touching myself so that little kids would never know, unquote. Nonetheless, given Cindy's hot streak on the charts, Shebop was an instant smash, rising to number three by September 1984, just in time for the start of school. Of course, Lauper was hardly the only artist pushing boundaries on the radio in 1984. She wasn't even the only female artist based in New York City. By sheer happenstance, Cindy broke on the charts virtually simultaneously with another provocative solo woman pop singer, and the media that year couldn't help but compare the two. It was probably inevitable, but still frustrating. Madonna's debut album arrived in the summer of 1983, just a couple of months ahead of Cyndi Lauper's She's So Unusual. Like Lauper, the Michigan-born, New York-nurtured Madonna had made her name in the downtown scene singing in clubs, and she too had an eclectic fashion sense. Cindy does claim that she wore a corset like a blouse before Madonna did, and that's about the only shady thing Lauper says about her. By early 1984, the press and even, Cindy claims, the music industry pitted the two singers against each other in a kind of competition, one that neither singer, not even the hyper-competitive Madonna, seemed interested in stoking. For the record, Madonna's album took a bit longer to break. Lauper's first single, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, was such a big hit so quickly that she was already in the top 10 months before Madonna cracked it. In fact, Borderline reached number 10, its peak, while Cindy's Time After Time was already number one, another chart feat Lauper achieved first. By early fall, Lucky Star became Madonna's first top five hit, just weeks after Shebop peaked. I offer these chart peaks for statistical purposes, but let me just say, as a guy who was a teen music fan in 1984, I have long been skeptical of this media-fomented battle royal. So was Lauper. As she recounts in her memoir, quote, The press always asked me about Madonna. They tried to create this big rivalry, but my feeling was, you don't fucking knock another sister, ever. Even her record company got in on it. The thing was, our music wasn't even similar, and she was so smart about business and marketing. I never was. And she always was and still is beautiful." Unquote. By the way, Cindy Lauper is still fielding these rivalry questions. Here's an excerpt from a 2019 interview Cindy did with New York classic rock DJ Shelley Sunstein. We were discussing who we thought would have the bigger 
future in the music business? Was it Madonna or was it Cindy Lauper? And I picked you. Well, because I thought you had more talent. You had the chops. I think she has different chops. I think yeah, everybody's different. But I'm just saying we wouldn't have that discussion. No, about no, not with men. No, they right? pit women against women, unfortunately. Right, right, right. I felt very bad at that time. Of course, Madonna went on to become a pop legend by the fall of 1984, performing in a disheveled wedding dress on the first MTV Video Music Awards and launching her risque single, Like a Virgin, which soon became her first number one. But Cyndi Lauper was doing just fine. The week before Virgin broke into the top 10, Cindy was peaking with her fourth straight hit from She's So Unusual, All Through the Night. We have no past, we won't reach back, keep with me forward through the night. When the song peaked at number five, Billboard reported that Cindy Lauper had become the first female artist to pull four top five hits from a single album, and the first artist of any kind to do so with a debut LP. As for the album She's So Unusual, it peaked at number four, and by early 85 would be certified quadruple platinum. By the way, All Through the Night was Cindy's first single since Girls Just Wanna Have Fun that was a cover. She remade a track by singer-songwriter Jules Shear. Remember that name, because Jules Shear will be back, part of the story of all three of this episode's subjects. Speaking of which, by the fall of 84, the Bangles had moved to the majors. They signed to Columbia Records, and they were finally issuing a full-length debut album called All Over the Place. Its first single was the chiming Hero Takes a Fall. As with Cyndi Lauper and Madonna, the perception in the industry was that Columbia had signed their own version of the Go-Go's, who were, at the time, scoring their final hits and about to break up. One DJ was later quoted in Billboard saying of the Bangles, quote, We need stuff like this. We haven't had a girl group since the Go-Go's, unquote. As critic Chris O'Leary writes in his study of the Bangles, quote, The two bands had never been rivals as much as legend has it, but many rock radio stations had strict, if tacit, limits on how many female artists would get airplay. So, if that girl rock band was over, there was more room on playlists for that other girl rock band. At first, Columbia focused the Bangles' promotion on rock radio, and Hero Takes a Fall managed to eke out a number 59 peak on Billboard's album Rock Chart. Susanna Hoffs and Vicki Peterson had co-written Hero Takes a Fall, but for their second single, the band went with a cover of this song by the British-American band Katrina and the Waves. Going down to Liverpool took the Bangles even deeper into their British invasion gone new wave style. It was Paisley underground turned maximalist pop, with a lead vocal by Bangles drummer Debbie Peterson. I'm going down to Liverpool to love the things of my 
an extra insurance policy for the music video, Susanna Hoffs brought in family friend Leonard Nemo, who played a grumpy chauffeur to the four ladies squeezed into the back of his car. The bangles going down to Liverpool didn't chart, but the video drew enough attention that by early 85, the bangles were given an opening slot on Cindy Lauper's tour, where the LA group and the New York singer took a shine to each other. It was a synergistic pairing, as the ladies were all signed to CBS labels. As were Till Tuesday who spent the closing months of 1984 working on their debut album. Amy Mann was honing their angular new wave sound. And at her label's insistence, Mann did indeed flip the pronouns on that ethereal, oddly catchy song, Voices Carry, which would also be the title of the album when it arrived in March 'Carry' the song was alluring on its own, but what really broke it wide was its cinematic, melodramatic music video. I'm so happy the band's doing well. By the way, what's with the hair? Is that part of the new image? The clip portrays Amy Mann in an abusive relationship with a controlling boyfriend who hates competing for her attention with her band and hates her countercultural lifestyle. They fight, they make up, at one point he even forces himself upon her. The song about a woman being silenced by her lover only amplifies the drama in the clip. Filmed at sites all around Boston and a final climax purported to be at New York's Carnegie Hall, the video drew acclaim from critics, one of whom said it, quote, looks better than most feature films, unquote. Amy Mann's final scene, defiantly standing to yell the song's refrain in the middle of a starchy Carnegie audience, still ranks as one of the most memorable music video climaxes ever. Mann's video performance, coupled with her cathartic song, established her pop rebel image. By the summer of 1985, Voices Carry had risen to number eight on the Hot 100. It would be the biggest pop hit of Amy Mann's career. For Cyndi Lauper, 1985 was about affirming her stardom. She was among the artists invited to participate in the American charity mega-single We Are the World by USA for Africa, on which Cyndi provided the show-stopping vocal performance. By the summer, Lauper was scoring a hit with the theme song to a Steven Spielberg-produced movie, the Richard Donner-directed kids' adventure film Goonies. The music video for Goonies Are Good Enough even featured a cameo by Cindy's new friends, the Bangles, who played pirates. Clip 
clearly, the Bangles had ingratiated themselves with enough famous people to help their career. But as of mid-1985, they had yet to score a serious hit. However, that was all about to change, as Susanna Hoffs made perhaps the most important famous friend of all. When we come back, his royal badness bestows a ready-made hit upon the Bangles, and it wasn't even their biggest single ever. Cindy Lauper struggles to follow up her insanely successful debut, and Amy Mann enters the pop wilderness. Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Malanfi. That's me. My producer is Asha Saluja. Extra thanks to critic Chris O'Leary for his exceptional scholarship on The Bangles. June Thomas is the senior managing producer and Gabriel Roth, the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the hit parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanthi. Sunday.